You'll know when you have a wild woman. She'll practice her craft without boundaries. She is truly autonomous. Her loyalty is only to the family she serves, a midwife who will not allow herself to be held back by a system she didn't create. This podcast is for the birth keepers who want to grow and change. We're open to learning through self-reflection and supportive community. We are creating this space to explore without judgment. We are remembering we were born wild. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Born Wild podcast. I'm your host, Leah. And Sophia. We are very excited today. Um, We have a very special guest that we're going to speak with. Um, Suzanne Arms um, is here with us. And we had the opportunity to have a delicious meal with her a few weeks ago. Was it a couple months ago? Oh my gosh, time has gone so fast. Yeah, it's been a, <laughs> been a crazy fall. Um, but she was gracious enough to come on the podcast. So if you're listening to this and you're a birth world person, you know exactly who she is. Um, but just, you know, briefly, the book, Immaculate Deception, Mm -hmm. Game Changer, huge book. Um, It was your second book, I believe. Um, Yeah, one of my favorite pieces about your bio, Suzanne, was um, Suzanne Arms is a visionary who gets her message out through words, images, films. She's an inspired teacher, a passionate yet compassionate public speaker who synthesizes earth-based and indigenous wisdom, intuition, and modern science with models from around the world. Your mission is optimal human development and thriving children, families, and communities, which I think is one of the things we're going to focus on today, um, is about how to help families and babies recover when things, in air quotes, go wrong. Um, But before we dive into that, um, we wanted to give you a chance to just kind of introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about how you ended up where you are now okay well first of all it's really good to be here I appreciate so much what the two of you are doing both in your practice as midwives and also in the podcast that you're doing Mm. Um, yeah when I listen to the description of me it makes me sound like a really tall person Uh, (laughs) (laughs) and I'm I'm quite little uh, and getting littler as I get older. Um, oh my, how did I get into this? Well, uh, I I actually went uh, at, to the University of Rochester and um, my major was literature, but my minor was anthropology, cross-cultural studies. And that's where I first got interested in the whole uh, question of why do we do what we do in the West and uh, how do other cultures do it? And it ended up being a question I often asked physicians, you know, obstetricians, when I was photographing a birth and, you know, I'd be out in the hallway with the obstetrician and I'd say, so what would you do if you couldn't do a cesarean? Mm-hmm. What would you do if you couldn't do a vacuum extraction? And of course they had nothing, there was no answer because they hadn't learned anything else. Um, So I 
I became pregnant at uh, the age of, I guess it was 26. And I wanted to have a home birth. I was living in a part of the country in Northern California where there were home births and where people were attending births who were midwives, early midwives at the time were called quote, lay midwives. Mm -hmm. That's because they hadn't gone to nursing school. They were self-educated. And as fate or my particular fate would have it, I never got to see a birth. And the reason that I was so anxious about it was that I had almost died being born when my mother's legs were held together and my head was pushed back with every contraction during the second stage because the doctor wouldn't come in. It was his night off Tuesday, Tuesday night. And uh, he had told my mother, don't go into labor on a Tuesday night. So, of course, we now know that it's the baby that starts labor. And I, being an Aries, decided I was <laughs> going to start labor on a Tuesday night. So he refused to come. That was Wednesday morning, Wednesday afternoon, whenever it was. And, uh, or actually, I guess I started labor on Monday. Uh, but anyway... So the nurse held my mother's legs together and pushed my head back with every contraction. And that's because in those days, if a nurse allowed a baby to be born before the doctor was there, she would lose her job. Mm-hmm. It was extremely hierarchical and patriarchal. Mm-hmm. And um, I didn't know any of that. My mother hadn't told me my birth story before I went into birth. Mm-hmm. But uh, I ended up uh, having basically everything other than a cesarean that could be done at the time. Mm -hmm. And all of the drugs that were given to me were later taken off the market, being found uh, to have adverse effects on the baby. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that includes Nysental and Bucopitocin, and Nysental was the shot that the nurse gave me when I first got into the hospital. And she took one look at me and she said, you're nervous. And she just slapped me on the arm and gave me a shot. And then, yeah, of course, there was nothing like informed consent at the time. And, uh, and the buccal pitocin was a form of stimulant that was wafers put against the woman's gum. And nobody knew at the time that that went directly to the baby. Um, so there was that, there was spinal anesthesia. Um, anyway, I ended up having my daughter Molly and a spinal headache for about 10 days. And it wasn't until about nine months after the birth that I began to really question what happened. Mm-hmm. I, I, I would tell people sometimes, you know, uh, I want to know what was the bus that hit me and who was the driver. <laughs> <You know? laughs> For some reason, I, among all the other women who had the same things happen to them, um, felt compelled to understand what was going on and why and ended up spending a lot of time in the basement of medical school libraries, researching birth, researching all of the issues around the baby and uh, 
that resulted in immaculate deception, which at the time um, was a pretty shocking book because I also photographed births with women who allowed me to be in the hospital at that time and did a lot of interviews with people from other countries who were working as nurses in this country and also uh, with obstetrical residents who didn't like what was going on and would sneak me into the hospital. So I was very fortunate. And I think it was the right person, the right time, the right place. And I can't really say it was me. It was um, good fortune. And, and I remember when, when I was writing the book and I was talking to various people like obstetric nurses who would say to me, um, who do you think you are? You're not a nurse, you know? And that question really stuck with me. Who do I think I am? Well, I'm, <laughs> I don't know how to describe it. Uh, there wasn't a word for patient advocate at the time. And uh, I remember when I was on a television show in Washington, D.C., being interviewed, this is shortly after the book came out, and I had been put on uh, the Today Show, interviewed by Barbara Walters. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so I was on this show in Washington, D.C. called, I think, Good Morning, Washington. And uh, I didn't know, as, as was often true after the initial interview with Barbara Walters, I would be pitted against an obstetrician. Mm. And and so there was me in a chair, and then the other side of the host was an obstetrician. And he introduced the obstetrician in glowing terms. You know, we're, we have here today a man we know and love, who we've had on the show many times from George... Uh, <laughs> I can't remember the university he was from. And Dr. Frank Barter. And on my right, we have an angry young mother. Oh, that's how I was in that really how they wow. oh. Yes, yes. And it was, I mean, I was so shocked that. <laughs> oh, anyway, when I came off of that interview, there was one person who came up to me and thanked me. And that was a black cameraman. And he said, thank you, please keep doing this. Mm. And it gave me it gave me heart. But I was often criticized for writing that book, for daring to question what was wrong with obstetrics. Um, and of course, it's a very patriarchal system, even though at least half of the people in it today are women, but you know, they're raised and educated and trained in a patriarchal system. So that's a long way around saying, um, how I got into this. Mm -hmm. I was going to say some of the best books are criticized. So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, wow. That, that's an amazing journey all the way from your birth um, to where you are now. Um, yeah. So like we had said, one of the things we wanted to get into today was um, how you talk about the innate intelligence of birth and baby care and how to repair it when things go wrong. Um, okay. Where did your focus around that begin? I assume, well, like, yeah, let's let's start with that because my initial concern was with the mother, very self-centered. I'm a woman, and I thought about myself. I didn't really think what happened to Molly. I didn't really 
think about the impact of the drugs on her system. I didn't think about, uh, and the colic that she had, which of course, especially in those days, was just trivialized by saying, oh, it's just colic. Mm. The baby's screaming for five hours a day, and it's called, it's just colic. But it still didn't really get through to me until I got interested in pre and perinatal psychology. And I guess that was in their early 1990s. And uh, went to one of the first conferences that was held on it. And, um, and my mind was just blown away when I, I discovered just how aware these babies are not just in birth, but in the womb. And the, and the impact that a stressed mother and a mother who's taking drugs has on the baby. So I, I became very interested in the baby and the baby's brain development and um, the neurobiology and in the whole question of why does nature do it the way it does and, and the... Um, I don't want to say perfection of nature, but the template that nature has for bringing babies into the world. And it's, a, it, it's an exquisitely subtle process. And, and when we talk about birth, we often think it's just the act of the baby coming out, you know? It's not. It's hard to say really when birth begins because it's a series of interconnected, interlocking processes that start uh, conception. Actually, before conception, if you understand how epigenetics, uh, which is the ability of environment to turn genes on and off to, to uh, cause them to be, uh, to, to come out in that child or not, affect the genetic make of that of that baby and then it goes from conception to life in the womb and we talk about life in the womb if it's as if it's nothing but it's it's nine months that that baby has lived in that womb of the mother not just feeling her heartbeat and hearing the sounds of her abdomen and her digestion but getting her hormones her hormones of fear or excitement or uh joy, relaxation, worry. And, and the baby gets them in several ways. I mean, the baby gets her hormones, which is the hormones of emotion, because emotion really uh, is translated into hormones uh, through the umbilical cord. The baby drinks the amniotic fluid, which is full of her hormones. And the baby is bathed in the throughout the entire pregnancy. So I, I began to be very interested in the baby and began to look at how my birth of my daughter, Molly, had shaped not only me, but had shaped her. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that, you know, the process of birth goes right on after labor, in the first few days after birth, when the baby's body is completely changing and and shunts are opening and things are closing as that baby shifts from being an aquatic being to an air breathing being that has to regulate its own temperature and 
and then I got even more interested in in breastfeeding because of course breastfeeding is part of birth it's 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 not just a choice people say oh it's a lifestyle choice no it's not it's actually critically important for this baby's development for the baby's gut and we now know that the gut and brain have a direct connection and uh that what's going on in the gut and the hormones of the gut directly impact the baby's uh, sense of well-being or not. And of course, the baby and mother are one system. So that's that's another thing that I learned that it, I had no idea. There's one system that affects each other so that when that baby, for example, after birth, is just licking or nuzzling against the mother's breast, it releases about 20 hormones in that mother's gut. And those are hormones that cause her to be more relaxed. There are hormones that help her respond to the baby. And it does the same thing for the baby. So self-calming and feeling secure is directly related to how, how confident the mother is and how, how much support she has and had right from even before conception. And, and it's so easy for women to take this and feel guilty about what happened to them if it wasn't an optimal experience for them and the baby. But in fact, there's very little choice in, in what goes on in birth. It's it's, it's a system of care that ha has been designed uh, in a particular way. And it's, it's hospitalized care and uh, with physicians being in charge and people coming in and out of your room who are strangers and basically everything going against the needs of the mother to have quiet, to have privacy, to have darkness or if if she doesn't want to be in, in a darkened room, to be out in nature. So I, I, I talk about this because it's so important to understand that develop net, developmentally, nature has a system that has been refined over eons and eons of years to produce a baby that will be nurtured in a whole system, in not just by a mother, but by a whole group, by a tribe, by a village. And, and that is the way that baby's brain develops to its fullest potential. And so when I look around today at how much anxiety there is, and of course there's a great deal of anxiety that has to do with what's going on in the outer world, but so much of this anxiety starts when children are put in daycare at six weeks of age. And, and when mothers are pushed back to work because there's no guaranteed universal paid maternity or paternity leave, mothers and fathers. And when Breastfeeding is more difficult if you have a cesarean or you have an epidural and it takes longer and a lot of women don't feel they have the time and they get, they get bombarded by relatives and friends who tell them 
that they shouldn't pick up the baby when it cries so much because that's going to spoil the baby. I mean, I could go on and on. Virtually everything that we do in the culture is designed to create what we've ended up with, which is a highly competitive culture. It's also very aggressive and very anxious. Yeah, and women are so isolated in their postpartum too. You know, how you talk about the village and they just go home alone for the most part. The, the isolation and the isolation starts in labor when a woman's left alone in labor. Mm-hmm. I often describe it as isolation, separation, and maternal and paternal deprivation. Mm-hmm. And um, but this is this is what is normal. So for years, I would say we have normalized what is pathological, which is for women to give birth in a brightly lit room with a bunch of strangers. Uh, And we have pathologized what is normal, which is for a woman to be in the setting in which she is most comfortable and either on her own or with a few chosen friends, village around her and uh, everything there to support her. So yeah, but the layers of support that are so important for a woman to have, for a man to have, for the couple to have, just aren't there. And uh, what is there are all these messages that you're doing it wrong. If you take your baby to bed with you, if you breastfeed exclusively, which means just breast milk, just the breast for at least three to six months. Um, I mean, we know now that skin to skin is critically important. That uh, after birth, that mothers and babies or fathers and babies, whoever is the critical person caring for that baby have three to six hours a day of skin to skin, naked, chest to chest care. What does it do? It, it, it grows a healthy gut causes hormones to be released that allow that baby to learn how to calm itself, self-calming. And of course, we're in a culture where calming is done by pharmaceutical drugs Mm -hmm. um, earlier and earlier. So yeah, the normalization of what is pathological and the pathologizing of what is normal is, uh, is something that is critically important to me. And when I talk about healing, healing trauma, ah, there's so much. I mean, we're very fortunate that there are many modalities these days for for healing what has gone wrong. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's almost like in nature where the, the antidote to uh, a toxic, uh, substance like let's say poison ivy or poison oak will be say dock and it grows right up next to it mm-hmm. it's nature designs that nature makes it possible and indigenous people know this people who live close to the land know this um, they they understand that we first have to look to nature to see what nature can provide and um 
wearing babies, not just having babies skin to skin, but wearing babies, not pushing them around in carriages. Uh, it's, 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 it's so important. But in a culture where you're criticized for doing that, it's very difficult. Mm -hmm. So I think the first thing that women need to do, and, and men, because men get traumatized by birth too, is to create a community of support around yourself. And that's not so easy to find. Um, <laughs> there are a number of websites these days for mothers that actually are in, uh, infused with QAnon people who believe that Hillary Clinton was eating babies and it, it, yeah, if you go on these websites and you think that you're getting support from women, you will also get a lot of information, seeming information, that has no validity at all, that is skewed in the direction of conspiracy thinking. So where's a mother to go? Well, there is a website that is extremely good for this, and it's, it's called... Uh, yeah, I'll remember it in a minute. Uh, kindred. kindred. Kindred media. That's one thing that happens the older I get. I'm 78 now. Is, uh, I'll link that. Words disappear. So it's kindredmedia.com. And if you go on that site and you open it up, it, it's like a whole universe of support is there for you. And it's not just about raising children. It's about co raising consciousness. It's about healing ourselves. It's about nutrition. It's, uh, and then, of course, I could get in nu into nutrition and the impact nutrition has on, on mothers and babies. Uh, uh, I mean, human breast milk is exquisitely the right thing designed. I mean, that makes it sound like there's a God doing this. It's just it has evolved. It's evolved to provide exactly what that baby needs. Mm -hmm. And in, in a group setting, uh, that, that baby, the mother's milk, will change in its constituents from day to day and even hour to hour according to the needs of that baby. I mean, that's just amazing stuff. I've seen pictures where a mother's nursing maybe her toddler strictly on one side and her newborn on the other. Right. And then if she pumps or something that the milk looks, looks completely different. different. And I've heard stories about like the melatonin level is higher in breast milk in the evening and like that it changes right. throughout the day. It's Right. The more you look into this, the more you realize the miracle of it all and the sacredness of it all. And, uh, and it's difficult because women are acculturated and programmed to feel guilty about anything that went wrong, anything that we didn't do correctly, and, and, and to feel ashamed. And the moment we feel guilt and shame, we close down and we can't learn anymore. So that's the first thing that I, I want to let people know is that there is no place for guilt or shame. Remorse, yes. Sadness, yes. Grief, yes, but guilt and shame stop us from growing, stop us from being open.
would have stopped you from writing your book. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's just crazy. I had this insane idea that if I told what I found to be the truth, what I had researched, what evidence had shown that people would be really interested in it. It never occurred to me that people would be angry with me for uh, sharing this information. And, and, and I, I'm thinking right now of a, a physician who did research at Harvard on electronic fetal monitoring and came up with results that he didn't like. It's not the results that he hoped for. He hoped to show that electronic fetal monitoring was essential and that it really helped in birth. What he found was that in a random thousand consecutive labors, the electronic fetal monitoring would result in X number of cesarean births, X number of epidurals, but it would save maybe one baby's life in exchange for causing complications or being read as if it was complications to hundreds and hundreds of mothers and babies. So I was at a conference in, on, on the East Coast and Dr. Haverkamp happened to be there. And I think I had just seen him speak I'm not sure. He had the courage to speak about the fact that his research didn't show what he had hoped. And uh, I was going up the escalator and I saw Dr. Haverkamp coming down the escalator next to mine. And I said, Dr. Haverkamp. And he, he looked at me and he shook his hand and he said, Suzanne Arms, you have destroyed women's trust in doctors. And the elevator, I mean, the escalator went down and I went up and it was like, <laughs> did I really hear that? Wow. Because I, I admired him. Yeah. I wow. thought he had courage. Uh -huh. you know? Wow. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Giant. So I don't know what kept me going. Uh, a crazy notion that if you let people know the truth, that, that they will act accordingly. I found that to be true when I started researching circumcision. Ah, yes. I was like, oh my goodness, if I just am able to share what I've learned, parents are going to be like, oh, I am so grateful for this information. Now I don't yeah. have to do this. You yeah, know, let's, let's, my baby. Let's, and I exactly. found people really upset with me. I was like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I see not circumcision wasn't an issue of mine because I had a daughter. So I didn't have to think about it. Yeah. But then as I began to research the impact of circumcision on baby boys uh, and the fact that it is removing the most sensitive tissue in the male body and that it doesn't even matter if the baby is given a shot, it doesn't fully anesthetize it. And that as Marilyn Milos who started NoCirc, the organization NoCirc, said it's the first time that a baby boy associates violence with pleasure. He knows something's going on in that part of his body because the foreskin is pulled and then it has to be scraped away from the penis 
and then it is crushed and then it is cut. And it's how can that not be traumatizing, right? So, and, and yet it's been a long time that Marilyn and others have been struggling to get Jewish physicians and Jews to understand that circumcision is really a cultural issue. It is not a religious issue. I remember learning that the original uh, covenant between the Jewish child at seven days or the eighth day and, and God was like a little pinprick, mm -hmm. a drop of blood. And it wasn't the removal of the whole foreskin, but what happened over time with Jewish elders noticing that many boys were, as they became men, pretending that they were not Jewish so that they would not be subjected to the terrible anti-Semitism of their culture, they would say they were Christian. And, and at that point, the Jewish elders decided to turn it into a complete removal of the foreskin. And it's just, yeah, I mean, uh, it's so appalling. It's hard to speak about. When Marilyn first saw a circumcision, um, and she asked the pediatrician doing it, why do we do this? And he said, there is no medical reason. And the baby was screaming. Um, she began to stutter. And, and she basically, she has stuttered for the rest of her life. Um, and she's 80 now. And it's still, it's still something that it, when she talks about, she starts, she starts to stutter. So, yeah. <laughs> How could we think that nature created a penis that was formed wrong and therefore should have surgery done to it? How could we possibly think that? But and we do. When you have a mother who is advocating for the protection of her vulva and vagina and hiring people to protect her vagina and her vulva from being cut. Yeah. And then to either uh -huh. hand her baby over or let her partner decide because he has the penis, you know? And like, you can see it's like everything in them is like distraught at the idea and they just feel like it's something that has to be done. Yeah, yeah that's right. Choosing. That's right. She doesn't want an episiotomy on herself, but she will allow, you know, it, <laughs> this is a whole nother issue because this baby has lived in this mother's body for nine months. Mm -hmm. and expects at a deep, deep, innate level that that mother will protect it. So when the mother says after birth, well, he's a boy, and so I need to let my husband decide, it's like, whoa, no, please. You are the ones who is the protector of your child. It, 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 yes, it is not comfortable truth to hear that, but in fact, it is true. The baby expects you to be the protector. So I have a question uh, because I have worked with families for sure where, you know, the mother feels coerced or ends up going through with the circumcision because of pressure from the family, um, 
definitely from the father of the baby, et cetera. And then is absolutely traumatized by it. You know, the mom who was having a beautiful postpartum and then just spun into a horrible depression. Mm -hmm. Um, And it affected so much about their, you know, the breastfeeding relationship anyway, but just talking about that idea of repair, Mm -hmm. do you have any resources or have you worked with people trying to do yeah. that type of repair, like between like the mother baby or huh. I was going to ask in relation, cause you were saying circumcision, but also in relation to moms who end up not being able to nurse for a million, a million reasons, right. like, like women who are listening to this and who either circumcised or weren't able to nurse, like what now kind of thing? Like, what can I do? <laughs> well, there is a lot out there and I don't, I don't do counseling one-on-one women right now, but um, I think the first thing is to apologize to the baby, to the child. I'm really sorry, but this this has to be done after the woman has done her own work, and ha- and has talked to someone else, and gotten her grief out so that she's not sobbing to the baby. I'm so sorry I did this to you. You know that is of no use at all. It has it has to be, honey. I'm really sorry this happened. I didn't know. And if I if I knew now, then what I know now, I wouldn't have done it. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it you know when we're talking about something as sensitive as circumcision or as breastfeeding, it's it's important for women to understand that a lot of remediation comes in holding, in cuddling, in skin to skin, in that very tender time before babies or young children go to sleep in that or when they're just waking up and and uh, they're still between the worlds of sleeping and waking that's I believe that's the time when the woman for example can she can take her shirt off or lift her shirt and she can hold the baby to her breast Mm -hmm. and that baby gets to feel her heart she can she can bottle feed in a breastfeeding way where the baby is turned what they call en face skin to skin against her chest and she is looking into the baby's eyes as she uses a bottle in, instead of what we have is the distracted bottle feeding approach which is the baby is kind of sitting on our lap or turned away from us and the bottle is just jammed in the baby's mouth mm-hmm. so there there are ways in which it's easier with breastfeeding than with with circumcision but with with breastfeeding we can mimic what sure does and uh and i think that's so important to remember and and above all for women to remember that it's not your fault you were raised in this culture yeah. you were raised in that family you didn't really have choice i did that with my son he had a bunch of surgeries his first year of life and and um so i got him donor milk for 2 years but i would stick mm-hmm. his bottle in my armpit and we i would be topless and i would like just shift his mouth a little bit so he was in my armpit nursing and oh that's wonderful that is just wonderful it's just a matter of 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 being creative 
and knowing, first of all, having a sense that the way nature has set things up to be is valuable and it has a purpose, it has a function. And then as close as we can to mimicking that uh, mm -hmm. is wonderful. Singing to the baby. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I can... Yeah. I can remember singing to a group of men at a circum ending circumcision conference, singing a song, how could anyone ever tell you you were anything less than beautiful? Mm. I, I can't even, I can't even finish it because I start to cry, you know, how could anyone ever tell you you were less than whole? How could anyone fail to notice? that your loving is a miracle and how deeply you're connected to my soul, you know, yeah. singing lullabies, singing lullabies to ourselves. And how you said about yeah. apologizing to the baby. I have a friend who um, died by suicide and that was one thing that he could never get over. I, I um, would uh, protest with him and about circumcision and he always would share with me that his parents refused to apologize to him and that was all he really wanted um was yeah to them yeah i'm just say sorry mm -hmm. yeah yeah there's um, so so much uh, i i do want to remind people of kindred kindredmedia.com because it is like walking into a universe of a village mm -hmm. of real support. And uh, it makes a world of difference, being alone, being isolated, uh, and then feeling disconnected, not just from each other, but from ourselves, you know? Being out in nature, hugging a tree, bringing our kids out in nature. If we live in a city, being near a, a little fountain or a waterfall in a park. I tell families that when the babies are, you know, like nothing else is working. You fed them, they have a clean diaper, nothing's working. I always, um, one of my friends told me to remember the senses, like to bring them outside into the fresh air, you know, the wind, yes. put their feet on the earth, run their foot under water, you know, let them look at the flicker of a flame or, you yes. know, to just try to go back to the elements. And and, and that's a case where crying with your baby mm. is okay. Yeah. You know? <laughs> it's not saying, I'm sorry, I did this. It's like, I don't know what, I'm so sad. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know what to do, and it doesn't feel good, does it, sweetie? Yeah, and the repair yeah. piece. I mean, I use that just in my parenting journey because I always have moments I'm not proud of, um, specifically with my daughter, who is uh -huh. uh, my challenge in this life, and um, and that I always try to remember I can always do the repair after. Like, That's even right. if I wasn't proud of what I said or how I handled it, there's That's always... Right room for repair and that I'm teaching her that you don't have to be perfect you know but um you but can't be perfect yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that that's very important they, there is a difference between knowing what is ideal and living with what is reality what is possible you know when you think about the women in the Ukraine and their babies and their children uh and what do they do when they're feeling so anxious and so worried? They hold their babies and they sing and they 
and they don't separate, they don't isolate and separate themselves from the baby. Um, one of the things that I've noticed that happens often when babies are behaving in ways that are very difficult for parents and crying is one of the big issues because crying re-stimulates our own feelings of not having been tended to when we were crying is uh, often these parents will place the baby in longer and longer hours uh, away in daycare because the baby is, quote, difficult. Mm -hmm. And so then the baby is punished for being, quote, difficult in what it really needed because crying is a, is a signal. Crying is a, a form of communication uh, that it's up to us to try and understand. It, the baby gets something even more wrong with it, you know? So I applaud you for, for doing that. And I think as women and men get together and talk about what creative things they've come up with uh, to help repair themselves, um, it, it, it will help. And, and, and I go back to the fact that we need community. We need to find people who want to hang out with us when we have a baby. We need to find out, you know, people who will come and hold our baby while we take a shower. And often people come after birth and they want to, they want to play with the baby. But what really is needed is they need to take care of the mother. And uh, I remember when we had an organization called the Birthplace that created a birth center in Palo Alto, California. We would suggest that people create a month-long calendar after birth that they put a friend or a family member in charge of when, so that when people called to say, well, what can I do? There would be a list of things you could do, you know? Well, it would be really nice since you, you don't live too near if you could put in some money for cloth diapers, diaper service, or if you live really near, if, if you could bring a meal Tuesday night, would that be possible? We don't have anyone bringing a meal on Tuesday night. And we'd suggest that the calendar be filled up and that people be told to bring the food in pans or dishes and leave it at the door and knock and it come back and collect it the next day dirty <laughs> to tell the mother not to clean it, not to wash it but to leave the dishes or the pans outside dirty. Uh, I mean, so often people come to see the baby and the mother gets up and she takes care of the guest. Mm -hmm. it's, we've just got it all backwards. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, yeah, we, we, we did that and it was a real help. We also suggested to women going to birth in the hospital that they create a uh, some goodies for the people who were taking care of them, mm -hmm. that they create muffins or something and brought in labor, brought in a can full of uh, things they had made because they got better care when they did that. The nurse remembered, oh, the woman in 17, she made those muffins, you know? <laughs> so there's a lot of little things that we can do when we're living in a system that's got it all wrong. But yeah. I think... Uh, as we talk to more people who have creative ideas, it will spur our own creativity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, beautiful. 
Well, thank you so much for coming on our podcast and chatting with us today. And is there You're any way people, if people want to reach out to you that they can connect with you and we can leave oh, a sure. show notes? Sure. Um, my email is Suzanne Birthing, B-I-R-T-H-I-N-G at gmail.com. And uh, I have a nonprofit and it's called Birthing the Future. Mm-hmm. And I don't yet have all the films up on uh, that that will be up on, as MP4 soon. But right on the homepage, there is a series of five uh, talks that I gave to small groups called um, the Human Attachment Project mm-hmm. that I think might give them some real uh, support, a feeling of support. So it's birthingthefuture.org. Great. And well, uh, they can find my breast, the breastfeeding book that I was the third author on is called Best Feeding, B-E-S-T-F-E-E-D-I-N-G. And they're going to have to get it as a used book. It's not still in print, just like Immaculate Deception is not still in print. But uh, the first author on it is um, Renfrew. R-E-N-F-R-E-W, Mary Renfrew and uh, Chloe Fisher. And those are two British women. Actually, Chloe is Scottish and Mary is Mary's Scottish and Chloe is English. Exactly. So I was the third author and photographer. So getting that book, Best Feeding, will really, really help. The one piece that they don't have in that book is on uh, self-attachment, where you'd simply let the baby creep up and attach to your breasts because babies know how to do that. And, uh, mm-hmm. Bobbing their head from side to side and then latching on. So there's, there's a lot out there. I think if they go on kindred media, I think some of it is they go on, on my site. And the, the most important thing to re- remember is that this is a far from perfect world. And That doesn't mean we shouldn't strive to know what is ideal and then accept what is less than ideal as the way it is without criticizing ourselves in addition. Accept it, learn from it, say, gee, I wouldn't do that again. Grieve it, grieve it with friends, create a sacred circle where you can talk about it and then talk to our own kids about it beautiful yeah well thank you so much for the work that you do thank you i'm really appreciative of your work here in the trenches as they say so (laughs) thank you thank you because we are we're uh we're not lone voices but we're still a minority right now and we need to do what we're doing and keep up our own hope as best we can Thanks for having me. Thanks everybody for listening. You can find us at Born Wild Podcast on Instagram. For inquiries or feedback, you can email us at bornwildpodcast at gmail.com. You can find me, Emma Ray, on Instagram at Emma Ray, R-E-A, Sophia, at sophiabirth.com 
and me, Leah, at Bay Area Home Birth. We would really appreciate it if you would rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps us reach more people. And as always, stay stay wild. wild.